Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. You might know of Christina Woodkey from her best-selling book, Information Architecture, Blueprints for the Web. She has spoken on the topic of the human experience in information spaces at conferences worldwide, currently consults and teaches at Stanford and California College of the Arts. She's led large teams at Yahoo, Zynga, MySpace, and LinkedIn. And you were one of the founders of IAI. Yes, yeah. I was one of the founders of the IA Institute. That was actually started at the, um, I think it was the third IA Summit um, in Baltimore. And uh, Lou and I, had been both up, staying up late that night, drinking with a bunch of people, complaining about, you know, how are we going to move the practice forward? And the next morning, we kept talking about it, and we decided to have a retreat. Um, so we all went to a Silomar, which is this unbelievably gorgeous uh, conference center in Pacific Grove, right on the ocean. They don't have TVs or um, telephones in the rooms. There are deer running around everywhere. And um, a group of people got together and said, okay, how are we going to help the profession grow? How are we gonna get smarter at what we do? And decided to start an institute committed to the practice of information architecture. It was something a little bit different because at that time anyway, I think things have changed, but at that time, uh, the professional organizations just seemed like, I don't know, kind of clubs and they'd hand out credit cards. And I don't know, it, it was really strange, insurance providers, um, and we wanted something that was only about the practice, right. um, just focused on how do we do this thing called information architecture better. And well, it's been going for a long time, like 10 years now, I guess. Right. And there's some fabulous resources on the site. It's great. Yeah. I'm pretty proud of that one. Um, I, they, they say the sign that you've done something right is you can walk away and it keeps going without you. Right. And uh, even though I was the, the president that first year, uh, after that, it's just, it's grown all by itself. You know, and uh, that's a sign that that initial crowd, you know, Peter, Lou, uh, me, Andrew, gosh, I'm, I'm going to forget everybody's name. There were a whole bunch of us, Jesse, James, Garrett. You know, we, we built something special. We built something that lasts. I saw that you had um, gone to the Kansas City Art Institute, and I was curious, like, what prompted you to go there? You know, I saw that question. Mm-hmm. And... One of the things I'm very much committed to in my life right now is telling the truth Mm -hmm. as long as it can help someone. And I think this is an important story. I went there because when I was a teenager, I was suicidally depressed. And uh, I was a small town, Iowa. People who were different were not accepted. And I was... Uh, seeing a therapist. I was even institutionalized a couple times for attempted suicide. I mean, it was quite serious. And even though I had a great SAT and had high scores um, and was applying to, you know, Ivy League colleges, I would kind of blew off the essay. I didn't really care. I didn't really think I was going to live. And then my wonderful great aunt Peg, who I love so much, um, suggested we take a tour at the Kansas City Art Institute, which was near, relatively near where she lived in Warrensburg. And from the moment I walked on campus, I knew this was a place I could be. In fact, it kind of gave me a new lease on life. Having a place where everybody was freaky and weird and strange and creative and everywhere people were making art. Um, there were no sports unless you count Frisbee. I don't know. It just, it really, it made me feel like there was a place for me. 
one of the funniest things I remember was walking through the design building and seeing toasters. And I think that was the first thing time in my life I ever thought, hey, humans make these things. I started looking at the whole world going, oh yeah, there's a human being out there somewhere who thought this house would be a good idea or this door would be a good idea or this toaster oven would be a good idea. And I think that that led me down an interesting path um, of seeing the world as something you create and shape as opposed to something you just accept. Right. And so you were had mainly a focus in photography and video. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I started in painting, um, but the instructors uh, in painting were abstract expressionists, and I was very committed to working figuratively. And I felt like philosophically we didn't really get along, so I switched to photography and video. And that's when I really fell in love with computers, doing computer-altered photography. It's uh, It kind of cracks me up because I was having lunch with my, my friend Irene, and she was talking about how amazing Google is right now. They have this thing called auto erase, where you can, if you upload your photos to Google Plus, you push one button and it will erase everybody who's not a member of your family from the photo. <laughs> and uh, I remember studying photography in school and going, what will happen to the truth when people can change photographs? I don't think, I don't think anybody ever pictured uh, how far from the truth photography would end up being. Well, that's interesting that you did um, a lot of editing um, on the computer, and that's kind of, is that where your interest sort of started in, in getting more digital? Well, I wish I could say yes. All my stories go sideways over and over again. Um, <laughs> so I did photography, and I started doing digital altered photography, and I liked that, and I liked computers, and I thought, okay, where can I move that does computers? And at that point, it was either California and New York, and I hate snow, so I picked California, and it turned out that was a good bet. And then I went back to painting, and I spent 10 years uh, waiting tables and painting, believe it or not. I didn't get back into computers for a long time. Um, I did fine dining, and I was making quite a huge amount of money working very few hours waiting tables. But then a friend of mine pinged me and said, hey, you know, CNET's trying to build a Yahoo killer directory. I don't know if you remember when Yahoo was a directory. Yes. And <laughs> not so long ago. And uh, they're looking for people to review websites. And so I had to review 50 websites a week. And I still have the T-shirt for it. Um, it was called Snap. It was my first launch. Very excited. Wow. Uh, and I just fell in love with the internet. I mean, being forced to look at every single caffeinated water or every single uh, fine dining guide on the internet just made me realize, once again, it was like the toaster story. All of a sudden I realized this was a world that people were making. This was a world people were creating. This was a place that we both explore and invent and create all at the same time. And we have a responsibility to make those things great. And it gave me a chance to look at so much of the internet. And after that, I used my magical internet surfing powers to teach myself HTML. I got involved with the, uh, the web girls with like four R's I think it had and uh, started teaching them how to code as well and got a job at Eat Greetings and never looked back. I, I love the internet. The internet is, is the most amazing in the world. Sometimes I think I was just waiting for the internet to show up. And so how did you make the transition from working from e-greetings over into information architecture? Well, that actually happened at e-greetings. I came into e-greetings as a temp. I was just uh, reviewing cards. They, I would organize them and classify them, though they didn't call that 
information architecture, uh, they call that temp work, um, putting them in categories and writing little snippets about it. And then I got into, I got, I, I started working in the HTML team and then I ended up running the front end development team there. And I was thinking about becoming a hardcore, um, a hardcore coder. And at that time I was doing design reviews with the creative director, David Rossi. And I would go there and I'd say, well, you know, we can't build this, but I'd also say, and by the way, this isn't going to be usable because, you know, Don Norman or Jacob Nielsen says this and this. Um, I was very passionate about making better websites at that time. And so when I mentioned to Dave that I wanted to become an engineer, he said, no, 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 you have to join the design team. If you're going to change groups, you have to join my team. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And he said, whatever you want. And I, I just read the Polar Bear book. It was the first edition of it. It had just come out. And I said, I want to be an information architect. And I switched over and taught myself everything and grew the team and ended up leading a team there as well. And then moved over to Hot Studio working for Maria Jadis, uh, who had worked under Richard Saul Worman. And so I got the other half of information architecture from her. And I feel like that was just something I was lucky, lucky enough to fall into, lucky enough to find and lucky enough to be part of. Yeah, it's interesting that everyone I meet has such a different path on how they got to either information architecture or user experience. It was a crazy time. I mean, if you think about it, um, websites were this brand new medium and everybody was trying to do it with their own point of view. Um, you had the graphic designers who are very frustrated with uh, the limited technology that was available to them. We had the things like the one pixel GIF to try to hold up a table so we could get text to align. And then you had the other side, the people who had been building software forever and were very, very interested in things like time on task and, and usability. And the web was a place where these two um, disciplines sort of banged into each other. I've often thought that wireframes were the ugly bastard child of that violence because um, on one hand, you had all these graphic designers who really understood how to make things beautiful but didn't understand how to make them usable. Any of the people who knew how to make things usable but not how to make them beautiful. And so in order to explain an interface that was usable, they'd build a wireframe that then the, the designers would pretty up. These days, we have people who grew up with the web and they understand it natively, and they can do absolutely everything. The unicorns, you know, aren't mythical anymore. <laughs> They're sort of every day in our backyard. Like, so I, I think that sometimes we forget why wireframes showed up and don't ask hard enough, are we really doing things um, the way they need to be done? Or are we just doing things the way they used to be done because it was a kludgy hack? Do you find value in the wireframe design? Well, it's really hard to say. Um, if you're doing everything end to end, the wireframe might just be a phase of your process, right? Where you're trying to think about the layout, but you know how you're going to color it and you know what sort of type you're going to put in there. And so it's a way of saying, okay, do I have all the content right? Do I have things more or less organized in a sensible way? But when I see an information architect or an interaction design or hand over a wireframe to a designer, I, I feel like often they're emasculating them. They're giving them a coloring book and saying, okay, add color and type and make it pretty. I mean, designers, that's not using your designers effectively. If it's very sketchy or it's on a whiteboard and they're doing it together, that's another story too. So, and actually I have to give credit for Mike Montero. It was when he worked with me at Hot Studio that he pointed out how insulting um, a highly designed wireframe can be to a competent designer. Well, now I think it's getting even more difficult because of dynamic content. 
and uh, CMS systems that use uh, content modules in several different locations. So it's going it to be interesting to see how it evolves to represent visually how that content becomes dynamic. Maybe we shouldn't be asking if it should be represented visually. A lot of the folks that are coming out now go straight to making prototypes. Right. So why are we trying to make something that's interactive and endlessly tall fit on a, you know, eight and a half, 11 sheet of paper? What, mm-hmm. what logic is that? Yeah, just to um, focus more on rapid prototyping rather than this glamorous, dynamic wireframe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's harder for the older folks, you know, who came from a different world, for them and for us, because the reality is um, we've learned so much. We spent so much of our time learning about, you know, anthropology or taxonomies or, you know, what have you that the idea of having to sit down and learn Ruby on Rails on top of that all, I mean, my gosh, you know, between my daughter and uh, writing, I barely have time to, you know, read a book. So the idea of, of sitting down and, and learning your code is, is, is inconceivable. On the other hand, you know, we make great managers, we make great strategic consultants, we make great design leads, so why worry? Mixed feelings. So much is focused on agile right now and getting things done quickly, but they also have to be efficient. So we can't skip all the steps, but we can do them in a different way where we can still apply our knowledge and expertise to the design, but not necessarily provide all the documentation or go through all the steps that we used to go through just because we used to do it and kind of revise our process to be efficient, but also very thoughtful. Yeah, I think if you step back and you think about um, what's useful and what's necessary and what's just sort of how it's done and separate those, you can start to find a more flexible road forward. Um, Another historical artifact is we knew information architecture and interaction design was incredibly important for making usable objects, but it was invisible to the clients and therefore it was really hard to charge for. They're not in the office. They don't see you working the way you do when you're in-house. And so I think a lot of these documentation got invented as a way of proving to the client that actual work was being done. And because you were showing it to the client, it started getting prettier and Snap to Grid and Helvetica and so on. And suddenly it became a thing all by itself. It kind of grew like a monster. And I think that there are still people who very, very much think about documentation as communication. Uh, Dan Brown is a fantastic example. But there are other people who are just obsessed with wireframes. And I'm a little bit horrified. I see all these classes on how to be a UXer, and they all say, we'll teach you how to make wireframes. But they don't say, we're going to teach you how to talk to users, how to do a task analysis. It, it, it scares me. Right. We don't need more wireframe monkeys. That's true. That's true. And so I know we've been talking about deliverables. We talked a little bit about how teams can work effectively. And I know that's one of your latest interests. So share with us some of your thoughts on that. As I left Singa, I started doing a lot of advising to startups and consulting to teams. And I feel for them very much because often they're really struggling to get these really wonderful ideas into the world and they can get in their own way sometimes. Um, Sometimes it's a matter of not having enough focus. Sometimes it's a matter of having too many opportunities, too many good things they could be doing. 
sometimes it's really hard to get a team all pointed in the same direction, working towards the same mission. And what I've been really lucky is, uh, especially with LinkedIn and Yahoo back in the day, and actually Zynga, I learned a whole bag of tricks um, and techniques that let you get your entire team focused, goal-oriented, and able to execute and measure over time. And so this sort of mixture of a little bit of this and a little bit of that has, has become sort of a protocol. And when I've been teaching it to the startups, they get really excited and they get really good at executing as a team. And so I've been focusing very much on that. Um, in a lot of ways, it's, it's just an extension of design. I feel like my whole life, you know, I started with, you know, designing features and then designing products. And then when I moved into design management, I started designing you know, teams. I used to say at Yahoo, I designed a place where design could happen. And then when I went to startups, I was designing a business. And now I feel like I'm designing a path forward. I don't think we ever stop designing once we start designing, but the things that we make change as our interests wander around. So this new system, um, like I said, it, it, it works. it works pretty well. Uh, because I'm a designer, I think very much about the vision. What is this thing going to do to people when they interact with it? Is it going to fill them with joy or is it going to cause them anguish? And so I start the process with this idea of the North Star, which is you have to figure out when people use your product, how, are, how, what are, how they feel, how are their lives changed? I like to use the example of Mint. You know, if, if Mint was doing it, they might say, we won't ship our product until people feel empowered to control their finances. Um, and so every single choice that they make is about making sure that the people who use the product really feel empowered. Um, I got this a lot from game designers who won't launch games until they're actually fun because what happens when you launch a game and it's not fun? Well, it fails in the market. There's no point in launching a game that isn't fun or at least engaging. But we redesign things like, say, email. We'll just launch it because it's time, because we have a deadline. And it doesn't matter if it does anything interesting or different or well. And so um, I think just taking that idea from game design that there's, there's a real emotion, a real change you want to create in the users and aim for it is important. And then once you have that goal, you can use OKRs to keep yourself aimed at that goal month over month. OKRs are objectives and key results. We use these at Zynga, they're used at Google. I think John Doerr is the uh, great meme spreader across the Silicon Valley for them. And what you do is you create a really qualitative objective. So for this quarter, we're going to create a amazing tool that makes you feel like you've gotten the best rates on your credit cards. And then the KRs would then qualify that. Well, what is that? What is best? I'd want to have a sense. I want to make sure that it was comprehensive. So I would make sure that I was comparing the rates against at least a hundred different credit cards. I'd want to make sure that I was getting the best rates and I'd be alerted that it was changing. So, you know, you'd have to make sure that it was up to date. You just go ahead and figure out what there would be uh, quantitative ways to understand what best was. And then you have a confidence level. You want people to stretch, but you don't want people to feel like their goals are impossible. So uh, you could set a confidence level of five out of 10. And then every week you report back. Is it eight out of 10? We think we're gonna hit that goal. Or is it three out of 10? We think we're gonna whoop that goal. And if you see a three, you can have a conversation. Basically, hey, why are we missing this? Did we do a bad job of figuring out, uh, is this the right goal? Or we picked something that was too hard for us, there was no way? Or is somebody not doing what they should be doing? 
Do we pick a goal that we're actually in control of? And then if it's eight, let's say two weeks later, you're eight of 10, you're obviously going to hit this way before the quarter's end. You have to say, are you sandbagging? Are you blowing it off? And so there's that. I have a couple other tricks. One that I think is really designerly. A lot of people think about doing participatory design, um, you know, where you have an interface and you have little modules of things that could go on it and you talk to your users and you have them put it onto the interface to understand what's really important to them, what uh, you care about. Well, I learned another approach, which is participatory roadmaps. And so you do the same thing. You have a roadmap that's basically uh, now, soon, later, you have all the features and then you ha uh, work with your clients, your potential clients to decide what features should go where. So the exact same things I did as a designer work beautifully uh, when you're working as a product person or a, a startup. So I think there's some very powerful tools and my hope is that companies will take those and be able to put more good products in the world. Um, I'm writing a book basically because I got this knowledge sort of through blood and tears and many years of suffering, and I would, I would hate for that knowledge to stay in my head. So um, I'm writing it up and I'm, I'm sharing it out. That's fantastic. I can't wait to read it. I, I can't wait to be done writing it. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, um, you're, you're talking about um, teams. I'm just curious um, if you have a story about transforming a team, a team that wasn't working so well together, and how some of your tips and tricks helped them change their mindset and work more effectively together. You know, it's funny because one of the things I feel like I've struggled against my entire career is companies do not like to share anything in case it might be competitive advantage, even, and it's hard to get a profession to move forward. And that's why I started the IA Cocktail Hours, that's the IA Institute, that's why I started Boxes and Arrows, because I feel like nothing ever moves forward unless people share what they learn. It's kind of the same thing here, which is I can tell a story, but I have to not say who it happened with. Right. Because, and in the book, I'm going to actually make up a, a game company. But this company I was working with, they had to decide whether they were going to be B2B or B2C. And to be quite honest, they were trying to do both. And so um, they had some people who were very committed to the consumer side of things, you know, the business to consumer. And they had another group that was committed to the, the, the B2B direct sales. And so I sat down with the leadership group and over a series of meetings, first we clarified their mission statement. Why did they exist? What businesses were they in? And what businesses were they not in? And what was a really quick and easy and short way to state it so that everybody knew when they got out of bed in the morning what they were doing? And through that, we were able to clarify that the real focus was on B2B. And from there, then it was questioned, okay, how are we going to transform the company to be focused on B2B? Because there were people who were off, you know, doing their consumer marketing and consumer uh, research stuff. And it came really down to a couple of things. One was setting clear and uh, create 50 pros prospects and build the sales team up to five, something like that, something you can do in a quarter. So we did that. And then the other one was 
getting the team on board, including firing somebody who wasn't going to be part of this new vision. And I will tell you, people are scared to fire people. People are scared to lay people off. But the reality is that everyone I've ever seen has gone on to find a job that suits them better. And not only that, but the team usually does better. Um, In this case, this person was strong, very strong, but it just wasn't a fit. And because they were strong, very strong, you should never be afraid to lay off somebody who's awesome because guess what? 30 seconds later, they got another job. It's really not a thing Um, in the Silicon Valley. Now, I understand there are depressed areas where that's not true, and I don't want to be facile about it. But overall, if you really want the company to survive and be healthy and be strong enough to keep everybody else employed, sometimes... Somebody has to take a hit. It's a tough thing to say, but it's true. Right. It's getting the team more focused. And and who you have on your team really makes a difference. I mean, you, you look at their skill set, their personalities, how they work together, how they complement one another. And, you know, if they're not all focused on the same goal or vision, it can be really difficult. Oh, it can be it can be horrible because you have this person who's constantly questioning whether or not you've made a good decision, and believe me, that doesn't help. As well as that, I think uh, most frontline designers don't realize how expensive every human being is. You know, somebody who's making say 120 could easily be costing a startup 200,000, and that could be another three months of runtime or even six months of survival for the startup. And that's the difference between making it to raising the next round or not making it to raising the next round. In other words, if you don't fire somebody, the entire company could go under and then you have multiple people without jobs. So you really, really have to do lots and lots of hard things when you run a startup. And it's important to just accept that as, as part of the fate that you've chosen for yourself. So the other thing is it's not enough to set the OKRs. You have to make sure that they're living. Many people set goals and then they go, okay, we have goals now. And, you know, two weeks later, you've forgotten them. So I also set up a situation where every Monday the leadership team meets, they make promises to each other. Here's the things that are going to happen this week. Just like it's just straight out of agile. Here's what's going to happen. Um, here's my confidence level on the OKR. Has it gone down? Has it gone up? Um, here's sort of the roadmap for the next month. Uh, Here's the health of the team. Here's the health of the technology. Just continual checking in. And then every Friday with the whole company, and these are startups, they're small companies. With a big company, you might just do it with your your general team. Um, You have basically a demo day at the end of the day with beer. And, you know, if you're a salesperson and you don't have anything to demo, you can talk about what sales you've closed. If you're a biz dev person, what deals you've closed. Um, But people start to really want to be one of those people standing up there with wins. Designers show off their their designs, uh, engineers show their code. You don't wanna be the guy who has nothing to show that week. So it creates a little excitement to be part of the celebration. It also makes you feel like you're part of a, t- a company that's winning. Um, I think that cadence of making promises and then celebrating wins is a really, really, really important one if you wanna, if you wanna move forward, if you want to succeed. And there's a few other, like I said, there's a few other tricks, but this team, um, we did the, exactly these things. We set up the mission, we put into place the OKRs, and then uh, the first few weeks of the company, let's just say they were a little worried about budget, and they wouldn't buy beer. And I would go buy, <laughs> I'd go by the local liquor store and pick up a case and put it in. And after the third week, I think I shamed them into starting to buy beer for it. Because, you know, that's that's part of a celebration, you know. I think a lot of uh, 
a lot of small companies don't don't spend their money wisely. Um, I talked to one startup that paid this uh, big name LA brand firm hundreds of thousands of dollars for their logo, um, but they wouldn't pay for a UX person to do a heuristic analysis of their prototype. I was like, you know, your logo will matter when you're big, but it won't matter when you're small. It ha- it can't look like somebody in a garage did it, but you don't need the best guy either, you know? Right. But if they can't use the site, it won't matter what your logo looks like. And it's really hard to kind of get it through their head um, sometimes to think about where you're spending money. And I've seen startups that are so cheap, they don't want to spend money on anything. And then they do fail because they have, you know, inexperienced people and bad tech and bad design. And I know it's really scary when you've only got, you know, half a million dollars in the bank. And I know it sounds like a lot of money, but I just told you about salary, so you can do the math pretty quick. That's not very much money. The money's going to go no matter what you do. It'd be nice if you succeeded along the way. Well, I think it's up to the leadership to create the culture or to at least heavily influence the culture. And if you're celebrating those wins, you're really making the team members feel like they are contributing something of value. And that's going to roll over into many things. I mean, morale will be fantastic. They'll be more dedicated and loyal to their work and to their designs. It has so many positive effects. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny, but you said something interesting, which is um, you talked about the leadership, but in a startup, everybody is equally responsible for the success. You know, I was just a consultant and I was just buying beer out of my own pocket um, because I knew it was part of the puzzle, but it could have been done by a front, uh, a frontline designer. It could have been done by a QA person. It could be done by anybody in a small company. That's one of the changes that's really tough for some designers is they're used to being taken care of in a big company and a lot of the hard decisions are made. But in a, in a tiny startup, every single human being in the building is shaping the culture and the potential success of the, of the company. Everybody has power. And I think that's one of the most important things um, for designers to get into their head if they decide to switch over to startups is the plus is they really can shape the culture of the business. The negative is they really have to shape the culture of the business and everything. It's, it's, it's a big responsibility as well. I really want to make sure we have enough time to talk about your commitment to joy. I just find so much inspiration in that. And I think it's important to share it with other people, especially as you have found so many other people that are taking actions to commit their lives to joy or just starting to consider it and aren't sure if they can do it or not. When I left Zynga, I was pretty tired. I'd been senior management for several years and worked insane hours and been so stressed out and so exhausted and had stomach problems and back problems and was sick every 15 minutes, I swear. And so when I left Zynga, I just decided not to take another job for a while. And you have to remember before Zynga, I was a general manager and I'd been a principal product person. I'd run a startup and we're talking a lot of years of very hard work. So I took six months off just to, just to goof around and relax and rest and think about what made me happy and what wouldn't be the kind of life I wanted to live. And I'm lucky to be friends with the wonderful Harry Max who said, 
when I was saying, okay, should I join this company or should I do this? He said, optimize for joy. And that's become my personal North Star. That's the thing that guides every decision. Is this going to increase my joy or is this going to deplete my joy? And from that, I thought, okay, how do I want to design my life? Well, let's do it lean. Let's run a lot of small experiments. So I thought, maybe I'd like teaching. Maybe teaching might be fun. What's the smallest thing I could do to find out if I actually like teaching? I like workshops. I like, you know, giving talks. So uh, I got introduced to a couple of places, and General Assembly offered me uh, an evening class, 12 weeks to teach UX. And I tried it out, and then I found, yeah, I really like teaching. Teaching's awesome. Let's do more of that. And so um, now, next year, I'm going to be teaching uh, with both CCA and, uh, and Stanford and uh, probably doing a few more things with GA as well. It's been like that with everything. Do I like giving talks um, at conferences? Yeah, I kind of do. I like travel an awful lot. Sometimes it's nice to travel on somebody else's dime and be able to teach at the same time. I think too often we make up lives that other people tell us to live. I mean, that first six months was so hard because everybody wanted to know, where are you going next? And are you going to do another startup? And are you going to join another company? And I can't wait to see this next big thing you're doing. And I'm like, what if I did small things? What if I, what if I didn't do big things? What if I did quiet things? What if I, what if I was happy? I think it's a struggle because the entire universe, um, well, not the universe, but most of humanity is really happy to judge you. Most of humanity is willing to tell you you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong. It takes a little bit of courage to try to find your own path and to do something that, that hasn't been done before. Even though it's hard, the rewards are epic. And I, I would encourage people, if they've ever thought about something, if they've ever thought about teaching or having a startup, don't quit everything and just do it. Test out those ideas. And if it increases your joy, do it a little bit more. And if it increases your joy, do it a little bit more and commit your life to to being happy. If a person is kind of earlier in their career, um, you know, I was going to ask you what's one thing that they could do, but I think, like you said, just take it in little bits and test it out. Absolutely. And, you know, what's nice is when you're young, you think it's going to ruin your life, but it's not because you're young. Like, you can actually join a company. You might say, I have a theory. Being at Google could be awesome. I have a theory. Going into game design could be really cool. And you can join a company. And six months later, if it doesn't work out, you can you can quit and you can go somewhere else. I wouldn't do that too many times in a row, but one mistake <laughs> isn't going to kill you. It really isn't. So be brave once in a while. I think if you're always doing things out of joy, it will lead you well. I've done a lot of things out of curiosity. I joined Yahoo at the moment I did because I wanted to learn about search. And I know that sounds funny now, but at that particular moment in time, I had joined at just the right moment. They were just building up their search competency, and I got to be able to figure it out with them, which is not an opportunity that comes around very often. Uh, people who, who laugh now at my joining Zynga, well, I'll tell you, I joined with some very senior people in the game industry because we were all curious, what does it mean when games are actually social? And I managed to work with amazing people like Brian Reynolds and uh, Mark Skaggs and, and learn from these giants. And for that, I can only be grateful. You know, um, Curiosity is a piece of the puzzle. The other thing is you have to watch out. Just don't get seduced by the big brand just because it's, uh, you know, I'd like to have Facebook on my resume. Well, is this a place that's going to make you happy? Are you going to enjoy going to work every day? 
Uh, oh my gosh, I have a friend who, who worked at an extremely, extremely hot startup, and she told me the story that one of her coworkers got home, and his dad's an artist, and he said, I didn't want to go in the kitchen where my dad and his other artist friends uh, were talking because they're going to all be talking about how satisfying their life is, and I'm just suffering. I'm just dying inside waiting for my payout. And I thought, mm. there's nothing that's worth that. There's nothing on your resume that's worth that. There's no mysterious IPO that's worth that. You just, you can't see the future. So you have to take care of your present. Um, so don't join a company because it's a big, sexy brand. Don't join a company because you think it'll look good on your resume. Join a company that you're going to be excited to see everybody every single day. And I think the rest will pretty much take care of itself. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And thanks for being on UX Radio. Oh, thank you, Laura. It was wonderful. I really appreciate it. This episode is sponsored by WeWork. Meaningful conversations are essential to the success of every entrepreneur, freelancer, and small business owner. Thanks to Steve Crosby for digital development and original score piece by Cameron Michel.